Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And our topic on this episode is one that has fascinated us for many years. And we're talking about how we interact with strangers. We're going to explore why we don't talk to strangers, how we can, and what happens when we do. Our guest is veteran journalist Joe Cohane, who's written for New York Magazine, The Boston Globe, The New Yorker, Wired, and many other publications. Joe's the author of a fantastic new book called The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a suspicious world. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jan and Laura. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm psyched to be here. There are so many questions we want to ask. But first of all, why did you decide to write about this? Uh, A couple of reasons. Um, For one thing, I realized a few years ago that um, I had just stopped talking to strangers, right? So I was raised by very chatty people. I grew up in Boston. My parents talked to everybody um, all the time. So I got to see, you know, growing up or being raised by them, I got to see the benefits of just like chatting with people all the time. They made friends, they had adventures, it worked out really well for them. Um, But a few years ago, I, I, one day it just occurred to me that I had just cut out this entire category of human interaction from my life. I was just not doing it, you know, and I never did it as much as my parents, but I still did it enough that I, you know, I enjoyed it and I found it enriching and fun and, um, and interesting. Um, and so I started to wonder why I had stopped doing it. And for me personally, the reason was kind of twofold. So on one hand, I had a young daughter and I had a demanding job and I just didn't have time or energy, right? Because when you, when you have interactions with strangers, especially if you're out of practice, like it's, it's cognitively demanding, right? You have to pay attention on a number of levels. Um, it can be kind of tiring, you know, take some work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing was just, I had a phone, right? Um, and so all of those little like moments of friction that we used to have while like asking for directions or ordering a pizza or just like, you know, buying something from a human cashier in a grocery store, um, all that stuff kind of became optional, right? Like I, I just yeah. didn't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have feasibly gone through my entire life without ever talking to a stranger again. Like really, you know, it's a horrible thought, but it, it was kind of true. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I, you know, once that occurred to me that those two things were conspiring to like, uh, to keep you from talking to people I didn't really know, um, I just resolved to do it more. And I've resolved to understand what kept us from doing it, both me personally, but kind of society is lar- at large. Um, and also dig into like what, what the benefits might be. Like, why does it feel good when it goes well? You know, what, what stops us from doing it and see if there's any like um, sort of social science research behind that as well. So that, that was the start of it. And then I just went deep from there. We're told as children not to talk to strangers. So it's kind of like we have to rewire our brain. Is that what you noticed as well? Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. I mean, I was raised in, in the 80s, the 90s, you know, and uh, we used to have cops come into our school and tell us that every, like literally everyone we didn't know in the world was a threat to us, right? Like, that's right, what right. you're the only safe person. <laughs> yeah, it's like you and your 15 people are the ones that you can count on them. Yeah. The rest of them, like, you know, beware, <laughs> uh, which is a crazy, it's a crazy thing to tell a child, you know? Um, right. It's nuts. And it's bad for things like social trust, which are really important to you know societies. Um, so, yeah, you, you definitely get that voice in your head of like the cop in your classroom, like laying out all these disastrous scenarios of what will happen if you let your guard down. Um, even though I should add, there's no statistical basis for that fear. Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of major crimes are perpetrated by people the victim knows. Mm-hmm. Right. The stranger crimes are like a a very small fraction of overall major crimes. Um, So getting past that, that was definitely a big thing. And, and, you know, I came upon a decent amount of research on 
um, how that affected my generation and other generations and how it really did make us like quite wary of other people. Um, but that's just kind of one aspect of, of, of the many, the bouquet of factors that a person has to get over, uh, I think, in order to, to, to make these sorts of interactions a part of their life. Tell us more about the research you did into the background of this story. Yeah, I, I went a few different directions. I, I'm kind of a slightly obsessive researcher. Um, and so part of it was um, sort of social psychology research. So I, I came upon a growing body of psychology research um, into what happens when we talk to strangers. And, and psychologists like Nicholas Epley and Juliana Schroeder and uh, Gillian Sandstrom, um, they've been doing a lot of work over the last 15 years to try to understand why, what happens when, when we do have these interactions and what they found again and again and again, um, and this has been replicated in other studies in other countries by other psychologists, is that when we do make a point of talking to strangers, um, it helps us feel happier. It helps us um, enhance our sense of belonging. It helps us feel more connected to the world. There's like a lot of benefits, just personal benefits, small benefits to having these interactions with strangers. So that was a big chunk of the research was just the psychology part of it and also the psychology of what keeps us from having those interactions, what keeps us away from people? Um, that's a big chunk. And then apart from that, I, I just went, you know, I kind of went crazy and, and went very deep into human history to try to understand the evolution of humans' interactions with strangers. Uh, that was fascinating. And then for me personally, I just did a lot of field research. I mean, I'm, I'm a journalist by trade, um, but most of the interactions I have with strangers are like in the framework of an interview, which, you know, as you two know well, it's different than just talking to someone. Yeah. You know, you know, we know what we're doing here. We know what our roles are. We know right. like, how this is going to go. We know what we're after. But when you just start talking to someone else, there are all these different layers of the interaction that you have to kind of contend with. Um, so I needed to get out of my kind of journalist mindset and get into like a much more improvisational way of interacting with people. Um, so those three things, you know, comprise the, the, the book as a whole, kind of three, three tracks. One of the things that you learned that makes sense is the hardest part about talking to strangers is actually the initiation. And then we get more comfortable. What is a good way to start a conversation with somebody? Is it to ask an open-ended question or just ask their name and where they're from? What is it? Yeah, this is like a, a lot of the psychologists I talked to kind of dug into what keeps people from having these interactions. And a big fear that people have is that they don't know how to start, right? They don't know how they're going to be perceived. They don't know what they're going to talk about. They're really, really, really anxious about that. Um, but these psychologists also found that once you start, it, it tends to be pretty natural. Um, a couple, couple thoughts on how you can initiate this. You know, a really good way to do it is just to notice something. Uh, I think ironically, the trick to talking to strangers um, has nothing to do with actually talking. It has to do with noticing and it has to do with listening. So there's a term in urban planning called triangulation. And that's when you're both experiencing something at the same time. Uh, and that could be a rainstorm. It could be like a street performer. It could be a car accident. Like it could be anything. Anything that two people are experiencing simultaneously um, creates this sort of triangle. Um, and when that happens, you can make a statement about what you're seeing. Right. And then you can just leave it to them to comment back. You can ask a question about it, something like that. But that that, you know, that commonality of that experience tends to make it a little easier for people to talk to each other because it eliminates the thing that we're all afraid of, which is we don't know what we're talking about or mm -hmm. we don't know what we're going to talk about. Uh, but there are some other tricks, too, that I get into in the book. There's a woman in London named Georgie Nightingale who's, who's brilliant. She was great. And I spent some time with her. She has this um, a, this technique called the preframe. And what the preframe is is 
you know, you say you notice something that's interesting about a person and you, you want to, you want to ask a question, you want to comment on it, um, you know, respectfully and curiously. Um, but you're up against the social norm against talking to strangers, right? Cause we don't really do it, especially in cities. So what you do is you acknowledge what you're doing. And this is the preframe. The preframe would involve if I saw one of you on the subway and you had like a hat that I liked, instead of saying like, I like your hat, which is, you're going to, you know, you'll back away if I do that. Um, I would say, look, I'm, I know we're not supposed to talk to people on the subway, but like, I just want to say, I, I really like your hat. I'm kind of in the market for a hat myself. Can I ask you where you got it? Something like that, that demonstrates that, you know, you're violating kind of a social norm. And then you're hopefully demonstrates that you're not crazy. You're not a threat, right? Like you're in possession of your faculties. Um, I use that a lot after learning it from Georgie and, and it's really effective. It's a kind of a great way to open a conversation. But you know, what's so crazy is that if somebody's in danger, if a stranger is in danger, then people all come together. They don't have to initiate that conversation. They work as a team and it's like that fear is gone. Yeah. And that's kind of triangulation too, you know, like um, in a way everyone's experiencing the same thing. You all kind of zero in on it, but also like, let's give a little bit of credit to humanity. I know humanity doesn't get a a ton of credit these days and often for good reasons, but we are very cooperative. Um, You know, Michael Tomasello, who's an evolutionary psychologist used the term when I was talking to him, hyper cooperative apes, we're hyper cooperative apes. And everybody thinks that's hilarious because everyone thinks humans aren't cooperative, but he's, you know, Tomasello is like, well, you should compare us to chimpanzees, which are our closest genetic relatives. Like they're not cooperative at all. They're actually, you know, they don't even give food to their kids. Um, but humans will do that. Humans will, will practice altruism, which is like in the scheme of the natural world is a crazy thing to do. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and we'll see someone who's in pain. We'll see someone who's suffering. We'll see someone who need, needs help. Even it, it could be someone trying to push a baby carriage through a door or get up the stairs or something. Um, we really can be phenomenally kind and altruistic to people in that sort of way. Um, but I don't think we notice it when it happens so much. You know, like I wasn't really aware of it until I started studying this stuff that, of how extraordinary that is and how heartening that is that you can see that sort of thing happen on a pretty regular basis. I've noticed in my own life, I've often shared personal secrets with strangers that I never would have considered telling even my closest friends. And so I'm wondering why you think we can form a quick foundation of trust with someone we're seated next to on an airplane or on a train trip and get to talking about something and you share something from your life that you really wouldn't share with anyone else. Is it because they're a stranger and you'll never see them again? Partly. So there are two things happening in those sorts of interactions. Number one is something that psychologists call the stranger on a train effect, right? Which is what we've all experienced sometimes where you you just end up having like kind of an intense conversation with someone you don't know. And the reason why that happens is there's not going to be a paper trail. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can get into this and it's not going to follow you home and it's not going to live in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not confessing murder or something, but it might be something that you're not comfortable like sharing with your parents or whatever. Uh-huh. Um it comes out, you know, and, and you're not inhibited because because you don't know this person, because th- this information is just going to disappear into the ether when you're done. Um, that's one thing. And that's actually really powerful. And that's been studied, too. But there's another thing where we kind of match dis- disclosures, like when when humans communicate, they kind of mirror each other. They kind of follow each other like it's a dance. So if someone um, says something that's a little personal, as long as everybody's comfortable, you're not just saying it cold to like a stranger in the street or something, the other person will follow them to that level of disclosure. I mean, we're actually wired that it's pleasurable for us to disclose something personal. And the reason why we're wired that way, the reason why we're like, there's like an incentive to share something personal is because that's what helps us develop social bonds. And for a human, which is a hypersocial species, human beings are hypersocial species, um, developing social bonds is the thing that like helps civilization 
stay on the rails. It helps people build their social networks, which means that you have support and you have access to ideas and you have access to partners and, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we're wired for those connections, um, but it only really happens when we're comfortable. Um, if you're feeling like you know someone is cornering you, uh, it's not going to work. If you're really irritated or you're really tired, it might not work, that sort of thing. But when you can get comfortable, you'll find that you match disclosures and that some kind of bond might be formed. And I think it's so interesting that you talk about the liking gap where we think that the stranger is judging us. You say that that's a deterrent. And I'm wondering how we can overcome that, because it seems like that's part of a bigger conversation about maybe low self-esteem. Yeah, the liking gap is is sort of like hilarious and tragic. Um yeah, it's this idea that we we come away from interactions with strangers underestimating the degree to which they like us. So uh-huh. we might, you know, we'll have an interaction with someone and be like, you know, I really like that person. They were like, they were smart, they were interesting, they were personable, um, but I kind of sounded like a jabbering idiot. And it's just, you know, I just can't compare. I can't compare uh-huh. with that person, but I'm glad I talked to them because it was really enjoyable. Um, the research shows that we we woefully underestimate how much people like us in these interactions. Um, that's not a license to be like completely socially oblivious to like someone who you've buttonholed, who's like discomfort, like uncomfortable with you talking to them. But on the whole, like, it's really important to understand that. And the reason why we, we don't seem to get an accurate reading of how much we're liked is because we have to pay such close attention to what we're doing in these interactions. So, you know, Jan and Laura, you two speaking to each other is going to be easy because you know, each other, you have a frame of reference, you can speak in kind of shorthand, you know, but when you're talking to a total stranger, you don't know anything. So you have to pay attention to their body language, what they're saying. You're trying to make eye contact. You're trying to think of what you want to say next, but you're also trying to listen to them to try to to understand who they are, what they're motivated by or or things like that. And it's just distracting and it can be difficult. You know, it takes a lot of practice to get good at it. But as a result, because we're kind of anxious about these interactions, we tend to be really hard on ourselves um, because we're aware of how much work we're putting into it, but we're not aware that they're kind of doing the same thing. It looks easy from their perspective, but we know that we're kind of struggling a little bit. Um, And that in our heads translates to like, I'm not doing well at this. And there's also this kind of hilarious thing where we compare every conversational performance to like our greatest conversational performances. (laughs) So you're just like, like, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess I sounded like, okay in this, but it was just nothing compared to that party like five years ago when I was just on fire. (laughs) You know what I mean? I thought it was really interesting uh, when you talk about the research that it shows that most strangers want us to strike up a conversation with them that whereas we may feel like, oh, I don't want to interrupt that person. You know, it looks like maybe they're reading a book or, or whatever they're otherwise uh, preoccupied, but that people really want someone else to reach out to them. Yeah. It's a funny thing. It's called it's this idea of pluralistic ignorance. So um, Nicholas Epley and Juliana Schroeder did this famous study on Chicago subway um, and Chicago mass transit, where they just sent commuters out to strike up conversations with people on the subway. And if you were to look at people on the subway, you would interpret their behavior as like indicating that they do not want to be spoken to, right? They're looking down, they're looking at a book, they're looking at their phone. Um, Their body language says, don't talk to me. Um, So what was really interesting about the study is that when people went out and started talking to those people, they found that the people were actually pretty receptive. And so Epley and Schroeder's conclusion was sort of like, maybe, maybe everyone on the train is misunderstanding everyone else on the train because the participants who, who um, went and talked to people on the train, you know, the, the conversations went better than they expected. They were longer than they expected. They really liked the people they talked to. They really enjoyed their commutes. 
Um, and Epley and Schroeder also did some research into like the people they were talking to, and those people really liked it too. So it raises this kind of tantalizing possibility that like we're all just collectively misreading each other, that we would really enjoy it if we knew that it was pleasurable, if we knew that other people might be open to it. Um, in the Epley and Schroeder work too, and this has been replicated in a lot of other studies too, um, no one really got rejected, which is everyone else's greatest fear, right? That people are just going to like, get away from you, weirdo. Um, <laughs> It didn't seem to happen that, I mean, it didn't seem to happen at all in the Epley and Schroeder. They said there's basically no, no, you know, no possibility of rejection. Now, I don't think that that would necessarily be the case like throughout the world, um, but it's really interesting. And it's a really interesting idea that there is like this kind of pent up interest that we might not even be aware of in ourselves that we would like to be spoken to as long as like people are doing it well and respectfully and with like with curiosity and openness. Is it a good idea when you're trying to think about starting a conversation with a stranger to give them eye contact and maybe a smile? And if they just look up briefly and, and don't change their facial expression, should we leave them alone? Or should we maybe say that comment about, I like your hat, I'm thinking of getting one and make it kind of natural and, and nice? Yeah. you. So I did a lot of this. I tried out a lot of these techniques and, um, and some of the ones that I did were like, you'd make eye contact first, you see if they're receptive to eye contact and then you can smile and then you can say good morning and then you can kind of start it up. But just to make sure that they notice, right. That they're noticed that you're, you're making eye contact and they, they seem to be more or less okay with it. Um, yeah, it can work pretty well. I mean, you just have to be, you have to end up, you have to get good at this uh, and it takes a little while, but you have to really hone your kind of emotional and social literacy in a way. Um, you have to get really good at reading people and reading whether or not they're they're into this or they're not into this. Um, and you have to avoid things like like looking at someone, looking someone in the face for like, you know, 15 minutes before you open your mouth. It has to be like, <laughs> like time and creep them out. Very important, right? Just being like <laughs> nodding and smiling for 20 minutes on the subway. Um, you don't want to do that. That's not going to work out so well. But to initiate um, to initiate an interaction, like that's a good way to do it. I mean, we've evolved to have um the, the word is like sclera, right? Like the whites of our eyes. Mm -hmm. um, it's unusual in nature for species to have whites of their eyes. And it, it tends to only happen in domesticated creatures um, where there's an advantage to telegraphing to other people what you're looking at. Um, this is like, you know, we're very social because we can cooperate because I can look at you and I can see what you're looking at. And I can look at it and then we can figure out a way to work together. Um, dogs are like that, you know, but wolves are not. Um, so eye contact ends up becoming like fundamental to to human interaction in a way, right? It's really critical, um, but done badly, it can also mean threat. It can mean like you're staring at somebody. Um, so you just have to be kind of careful. But yeah, I think I think it's I think if you try to talk to someone without making eye contact, they're going to think that you're up to something. It'll look like it'll make it look like you're uncomfortable and kind of untrustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one other thing I found that was interesting in the book is you write about how minor social interactions are even very important. Those you know, people that we nod to or wave at or exchange pleasantries with, uh, you know, for a at very few seconds. Store yeah. Uh, you know, that even these minor things are important. Tell us more about that. Yeah, they can be really important. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, I live in New York City and, you know, even before COVID, which obviously just rocked, rocked this town, um, New York City's changing constantly. There are tons of people around. It's chaotic. It can be, it can be, you know, really overwhelming. You can feel kind of rootless. You can feel unmoored. You can feel like it's just this endless swirl of chaos. So for me, what becomes really valuable is knowing that three, four times a day, I will go to a place and there'll be a person there and the person will know who I am. 
right? It kind of roots me in the world. It, it anchors me in a way. Um, so these little interactions, you know, I talked to, to a few psychologists who, who, who were really affected by these as well. Um, they're a way of making the world feel more settled, a little more calm, a little less chaotic. Uh, they're really useful. And that's in terms of like, you know, the people that you kind of see every day. So the woman who owns the coffee shop by my office, like I talk to her every day. It's, it makes my day better to know that I can walk in there and I can see Jen and we can have a chat. Um, but other minimal social interactions, like just having a chat with a barista at a coffee shop have also been shown to be surprisingly powerful too. Just saying like, how's, you know, how's your day going and meaning it, right? Not just being like, how's your day going? to be like, fine. How's your day? Fine. Like not doing that, <laughs> but actually like caring, you know, like being like, I hope, you know, day's going all right. I talked to my, the, the guy who delivered my groceries last night, I chatted with him a little bit and he could kind of read that. I was like, I was genuinely curious. I was hoping his day was going well. Um, and he, you know, he kind of told me a little bit. I told him a little bit. We had a nice little chat. Just took like 10 seconds, 20 seconds. Um, but it felt nice, right? Like I, right. I, didn't, yeah. I he walked out away and I was like, oh, I don't have to worry about that guy, right? That guy's <laughs> a, right? Because again, like we're wired to be wary of strangers for sure. I don't want to, I don't mean to undersell that. But it's tremendously reassuring to have a positive interaction with a stranger. Be like, okay, I don't have to worry about that one. There are a lot of other ones I have to worry about, but that one's okay. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely makes you a little more optimistic and feel a little, a little calmer and a little less under threat. Yeah. Well, talk to us about the effect of COVID on meeting strangers. And I'm wondering how not meeting them, unless it was part of the study that you referenced where people actually met each other through Zoom, but that doesn't happen for most of us. How did it make us more lonely? And do you think it made us treasure those interactions that we would have, say, with a DoorDash person? Yeah. I mean, I had like a hilarious conversation with my FedEx guy about like the fallacy of linear time. That was my favorite. And both of us were just like, we we're just really enjoying it. Um, yeah. The pandemic shut down in-person interaction in a lot of ways. Um, and there's a lot of research on like what infectious disease does to societies um, in terms of the way people regard each other and they socialize and things like that. And obviously when there are high rates of infectious disease. People are going to be super wary of strangers and they're going to be super wary of like outsiders because they're going to, th they're going to worry that these people are carrying disease. Um, so that's definitely, that's in the book as well. Um, so you steer around each other, right. And we're, you know, you're not necessarily afraid of them, but you're trying to reassure them that I'm not afraid of you. And I'm just trying to help you. And you're trying to help me. And it's this whole dance, like, especially in New York, it was, it was, it was terrifying to go through, but it was very interesting to watch. Um, but what we lose when we lose those interactions is, in-person contact. We lose serendipity. We lose the chance to like have a completely random interaction with somebody. And for me that, that I really suffered with the loss of that, with the loss of randomness. Cause I love that about talking to people. You just never know where it's going to go. And then all of a sudden everything is done on a schedule and everything is done on zoom and it's the same people all the time. And it's just like, it wore me out. I, I really, I really did not like that. Uh, and this research, it shows that, that will kind of, um, this research, research that shows a correlation between in-person communication and levels of loneliness, right? So there's like a big, big study done a few years ago that found that people between the, the ages of 18 and 22 have the highest rates of loneliness of any cohort. And the researchers believe that it was because they had the least in-person contact because they had shifted everything to digital communication. So, you know, that was no longer the province of the, that group. Now we all were like that, right? Everybody felt that way. Everybody was off in per, like personal communication for a year and a half. Um, and I think it made us lonely and, and depression rates went through the roof and people are socially anxious and all these, all these kind of terrible things happened as a result of that. Um, the upside for me is that like, think about what happened 
during COVID, right? What COVID did for the, at least those of us who are fortunate, fortunate enough to like be able to withdraw from in-person human contact, so not like essential workers, um, it gave us a glimpse of what the future was going to be like, right? So where everything is increasingly shifting to digital platforms, we are increasingly withdrawing from like the public. Um, more and more of our interactions or our relationships are like carried out over computers and phones and stuff like that. Um, people aren't shopping in stores anymore, all this stuff. Like we have withdrawn from the public realm to a great degree, even before this. What COVID did was speed that ahead 10 years uh, or 15 years, basically. And it just said, this is what life is going to be like. Do you like this? Do you enjoy living like this? Do you enjoy spending all your time in your bedroom on your computer? Or do you miss, you know, do you realize now what we're in the process of losing? And so for me, it's super valuable because like it, it was just such a stark reminder of like where this was going. Um, and it gives us the chance to choose how we want to live. Do you think that going forward, because of the experience we had during the pandemic, when we were isolated from our fellow man, that going forward, we're going to be actively wanting to seek out more connections with with strangers? I mean, will, will we think twice about doing this and, and, and do it for the good of our mental health? Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, I... In New York, like I've gone out three times in the last like three weeks, which is like fantastic. I'm, yeah. I'm really, really enjoying myself. But New York is nuts right now. And people are really social and it's really exuberant. And a lot of us have been through some really bad times. And I just keep coming upon this again and again. People are so happy to be in the company of other people again. And they're curious and they're into it. Like it has been a riot to go out in New York. Um, since New York started to reopen. It's really enjoyable. It's really inspiring. It's been great. Um, I really hope that people do come to understand what we are in the process of losing. I hope they try this out and they, they feel what I've felt and what the research shows, which is like, this feels really good. This is really beneficial. Um, and when you look at the rates of mental illness in the United States, if you look at the, you know, the so-called loneliness epidemic, there are a lot of problems that could be not cured because they're complicated, but certainly alleviated by just making this a practice on your, in your everyday life. Um, you'll feel less lonely. You'll feel happier. You'll feel more settled, all these things, less estranged from society. Um, it can even alleviate like prejudice, partisanship, all these things can, can drop a little bit just from the result of kind of like contact, decent contact between strangers. Um, I think it's really important that people try to do this. Um, and I hope that they have a positive experience when they do, but the research suggests that they probably will. It should go pretty well. And you even make the point that if you're having a bad day, just look around and see if you can make a connection with a stranger, see if you can have some kind of human interaction and it will help boost your mood. Yeah, it really will. It's so easy. It's just this endlessly renewable resource. I mean, I had, when I was doing this book, I, you know, I have a small, I have a young daughter. And when I was doing the research, she was having like a pretty severe um, sleep disorder. She was waking up screaming four or five times a night for an entire year. And it was just torture, right? Um, and I remember just being out on my rounds, trying to chat with people. And I bought a hot dog from like a hot dog cart in Central Park. And I was just chatting with the guy, just like, how's the day going? Oh, it was pretty good. He was like, and he was like, you know, how's your day going? And this is one of the things you learn is you have to answer with specificity when people ask you that question. You can't just be like, fine, how's yours? Because then you'll just be scripted. Nothing will, nothing will happen. But he asked me how I was doing. I was like, well, you know, like I'm actually having kind of a rough day. My kid kept me up all night last night and feeling a little ragged. And he was just like, well, how old is she? I was like, well, she's three. And he goes, is she a good kid? And I was like, yeah, you know, she's charming, but volatile. And the guy just laughs and he goes, aren't we all? 
<laughs> and so from that alone, like such a great line from a guy in a hot dog cart. Honestly, right. like no one ever talks to those guys, you know, and people rarely talk to the people who serve them their food and get them all these things that keep them alive. But it's it's super valuable, both because it just got a laugh out of me and I felt good about it. And we had a little connection. Um, but it also just reminded me that, like, you know, the hot dog guy is an interesting guy and therefore, like, everybody's an interesting person. You know, you can generalize from that. Um, it's just really valuable. And Joe, at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about talking to strangers that you wish you'd known when you were, let's say, a teenager? Let's say it's when you were supposed to actually talk to strangers and not be afraid of them that you wish you'd known. Yeah. Um, let me think for a second. I think there's a really valuable lesson to be learned about small talk. Um, and I, you know, I've written about this a little bit recently when you're, and I, I experience this now too, because I'm like a pathologically impatient person generally. Um, when people make small talk with you and they say small talk things and they ask you small talk questions, the tendency is to shut down and just be like, this person has nothing to say. Right. And they're like, this is all they're capable of. This is the best they can do is this mm -hmm. terrible question. Yeah. I've been asked a million times. What I didn't know. Uh, and I know now from doing this research is small talk. The content is nothing. The content isn't the point of the small talk. The bond is the point of the small talk. So what small talk does is it allows you to be in the company of a stranger and have like a peaceable little exchange to demonstrate to each other that like you're here, right? We're looking at each other. No one's attacking each other. Like we're reasonably comfortable. We're both remarking on the rain or something like that just to show that like we have our faculties intact. Um, but small talk is the beginning, right? It's not a way to fill a half an hour. It's just a way to get yourself comfortable in the company of another person so you can get to something else. It can lead to something else. It can lead them to tell you what, what motivates them, what's, what inspires them. And likewise, the same, same thing about you. Um, had I known about that, I think I would have had a lot, a lot of better conversations at parties generally um, and probably learned a lot more, but I just didn't understand like the function of it. And I love the fact that you say that every interaction that you have with somebody, every person can add a little bit to your life. Yeah, there's like, for me, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of the value beyond just like short-term like gains to your day, making you feel happier, that sort of thing, um, is that when you talk to a stranger, particularly if you have like a meaningful exchange, and that doesn't mean a long exchange, it just means something of value has been exchanged. Um, you get like a little glass bottom boat tour of the life of another person. You get mm -hmm. to see that their life is different from your life, that the way you experience reality is not the way that they experience reality. You may gain something from the way they experience reality. You may gain um, some insights into your own beliefs, into your own per perceptions, that sort of thing. But it's enormously valuable to understand that not everyone has the same life. Not everyone has the same reality. I think without that, there's no chance of being like a wise person. Um, it's really important to understand like that sort of complexity. Um, and, and there's some of the great interactions I've had with people. It's that. Um, it's that sort of thing. Just being like, I'd never thought of that. But that person's experience of this street, you know, this specific street, New York City, is so fundamentally different from mine that I can't walk down that street anymore without being mindful of that. I can still enjoy that street, but I also understand that, like, my reality is not everyone's reality. Right. Uh, and I think that's really important. How can people connect with you and learn more about this amazing book that my mom and I so enjoyed? 
That's great. Thank you so much for saying that. I'm so glad you like it. Oh, we um, loved it. It's fabulous. It, it's seriously <laughs> fabulous. And you're a tremendous writer. Yeah. I have to say that even with the prologue, you had me so bold. Right. <laughs> That's great. You I, did. Yeah. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm very easily bored. So I tend to write in a way that like occupies, <laughs> like, holds my own attention, you know, otherwise, like five seconds later, I'll be wandering away, like whistling a song. Um, you can get in touch with me. Uh, you can go to my website, which is joecohane.net. Um, I'm going to spell it. I apologize for my last name yet again. Um, <laughs> J-O-E-K-E-O-H-A-N-E.net. Um, I'm on Twitter. You can find me very easily on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, but my email address is on my website. You can DM me through Twitter. I try to reply to every email I get generally. So hopefully I can get back to you. Um, and the book is just available anywhere. You can get it anywhere. Well, thank you so much, Joe. We know you're going to have a lot of success with this. This is just a fabulous topic. And we thank you for sharing your insight on it. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a real pleasure talking to you. It was a lot of fun. Again, our thanks to Joe Cohane, whose new book is called The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. And again, his website is joecohane.net. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 